0: sort of self-conscious knowledge of I am Jewish, and um, it's important to me, and it guides my actions and the way I think about the world and what I look for in the world. They, all, they also didn't have that sort of personal connection to Judaism, and so I just didn't really see myself in either of those groups and realized that um, what I valued about my Jewish community could be uniquely American, and that was okay.
1: Hi, my name is Jacob, and welcome to the Story Table Podcast. The person you just heard talking was Sophie Leff. She's a junior political science major at the University of Vermont, and when she isn't juggling her classwork and practicing with her a cappella group Zest, she is trying to get something new started at her school, starting a student-driven conversation around the Israel-Palestine conflict. Why she believes what she does around the conflict and why Jewish Americans, in general, feel the way they do is tied to their identities as Jewish Americans, as well as their unique experiences as individuals. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Jacob Holzman. I'm a journalist, a filmmaker, a musician, and I'm a Jewish-American. When I was 16 years old, I had the good fortune of being able to travel to Israel, along with a group of a couple dozen teenagers and young adults like myself. I had the fortune of spending an entire month as a young explorer, traveling from the Golan Heights to the Kotel, military base to military base, the Dead Sea to the Red Sea, Many things happened in that month that I'll never forget. Leading a bus in Queen's We Will Rock You on my birthday, mourning my grandfather at the hotel less than a week after his passing. At one point during the trip, our bus crashed into a tree, branches breaking through the window, sending glass and brambles across our laps. You know, it's funny how every memory you get ends up like an avalanche. It starts small at the top of the mountain, the size of a tiny little pea. But by the time it rolls to the bottom, it's picked up all the snow on the mountain and shifted it all about. One memory, one story, can speak volumes about where that person's life has been, what beliefs they've picked up along the way, and why they believe them. That's what we're here for today, for the sake of trying to parcel out the different experiences of the Jewish American and they're trying to find their own feelings toward and personal connections to the state of Israel. We're going to hear stories from Sophie, as well as other Jewish American students who have had unique experiences laying the groundwork for their identities and their beliefs. We're going to dig deep and map the anatomy of that memory avalanche. This is Storytelling. To start, let's go back to Sophie. Her story begins with a Shabbat tradition that some might see as odd or strange, but for her, it's completely normal. She has a habit of, on occasion, crying uncontrollably on Shabbat. This is Sophie.
0: I have this habit of crying at Shabbat services when I'm away from home. I cried at the second week of college at my first Shabbat service at Hillel. I cried in Berlin at a service that happened to take place on my birthday. I cried at a service in Amherst, Massachusetts. I cried in Jerusalem on a small patch of grass in the parking lot of an office park where my birthright group was celebrating Shabbat. When I signed up for birthright, friends and family told me that it was going to be the best week of my life. You'll have such a spiritual experience, they said. You'll feel like you found your home. But sitting in that Jerusalem parking lot, I was having anything but a spiritual experience. My tripmates mumbled tunelessly along to my favorite Shabbat songs, and each murmured a few apathetic sentences when asked to share what Shabbat meant to them. Our groovy trip leader implored us all to really feel it as she fumbled aimlessly with, with the guitar. In that moment, I felt even farther away from my warm and vibrant Jewish community at home than I actually was. I fought to hold back my tears. So I was surprised the next night when we sat in a dank basement room of the Jerusalem Gold Hotel, or the Jerusalem Mold Hotel as it was known to the tour guides. My tripmates began to wax poetic about how transformed they felt in the Holy Land, how at home. It's just so nice that everyone here is Jewish. Everyone just gets it. Gets what? I thought. I didn't feel an automatic connection to Israelis or even to my tripmates just because we were Jewish. It wasn't Insta community just at Jews. It seemed to me that much more separated me and Israel than brought us together. When we visited the hotel, I felt even less at home. I approached the great white wall, stiflingly hot, in my black skirt pulled over jean shorts. I made my way through a sea of plastic chairs and praying religious women with young children, and found an open sliver of wall. Slowly, I rested my forehead on the stone. To my surprise, it was warm, like the August Jerusalem day. For some reason, I had expected the stone to be cool and soothing. I racked my brain. I was here. Shouldn't I feel moved to pray, sing, or even just feel? I whispered the Shema under my breath and quickly slipped a note into the crevice in front of me. Then I backed away, feeling empty and disappointed. And so later that very night, I sat celebrating Shabbat in a parking lot, trying not to cry. I could not find what everyone had told me to look for. The sheer fact of being Jewish did not and could not connect me to that place and those people. I began to realize that a much stronger glue held the Jewish communities I treasured together and helped me find peace and meaning there.
1: We asked Sophie, after she told us her story, if she could explain what she meant by a much stronger glue, holding the Jewish communities she treasured together. What, if not Israel itself, came to shape her identity as a Jewish American during her experience in Israel? Here's her explanation.
0: I think um, when I wrote that, or, or, you know, was working on that, I... Was sort of referring to this feeling I had when I was in Israel, where I looked at the religious people in Israel, um, you know, the Orthodox women who wear wigs or cover their hair and long skirts. And and they don't call them Orthodox there, but um, that's what they sort of seemed like to us as Americans. Um, And also looked at sort of the Israelis on my trip, because we had Israelis who traveled with us. And I just really felt like I couldn't identify with either group um, because I. Don't identify with. I sort of identify with a reform ideology of Judaism, where you know you you choose what um, ideologies and practices of Judaism have meaning for you in your in your life. Um, and so the sort of strict adherence that a lot of those people follow didn't really um, appeal to me. And at the same time, though the sort of secular, uh, especially secular young people in Israel don't really engage with Judaism at all, um, and it's just kind of the the air they breathe, right? So there that sort of self conscious knowledge of I am Jewish and um, it's important to me, and it guides my actions and the way I think about the world and what I look for in the world. They all, they also didn't have that sort of personal connection to Judaism, and so I just didn't really see myself in either of those groups and realize that um, what I valued about my Jewish community could be uniquely American and that was okay Um, and that the sort of shared values of social justice and critical thinking um, and education and looking for meaning and connection in Judaism um, I think is what really appeals to me about my Jewish community at home uh, which I'm very lucky to be a part of Um, and so then I've sort of on the heels of that experience gone and, and been able to find um, some really fulfilling Jew- what, what feel like Jewish communities to me, even, you know, cause a, a community can be Jewish, Jewishly guided and feel Jewish, even if it's not like I'm involved in J Street U, which is a um, national group of campus organizations working for a two state solution. Um, and it's not, it's not completely composed of Jewish students. Like there are lots of students coming from other backgrounds, but um, it's, it's, guided by these ideals of justice um and equality that feel and and critical thinking and and um and learning and respect that feels so inherently Jewish to me and it was like I've definitely found more that I can connect to and that resonates with me in that kind of community than I did in Israel um and so just like trying to to reconcile this that I you know that Israel was supposed to be this homeland for me, and I didn't feel at home at all, Um, and that I, it just made me realize more about what it is about American Judaism that is so important to me, Um, which, you know, even if I didn't have the spiritual experience that everyone told me I would, or didn't, like, you know, like, want to make Aliyah, um, that it still had a lot of value in just, like, teaching me what's important to me about my Jewish life in the States.
1: move on to our next story, we're going to play a few portions of a truly fascinating interview I had with Rabbi Melissa Weintraub. Rabbi Weintraub has taught on over four continents and built up multiple organizations focused on helping and providing facilitated open discourse surrounding the Israel-Palestine conflict and the Jewish American experience. In 2005, Melissa started Encounter, a non-partisan educational group, which focuses on bringing together Jewish American leaders from across the political spectrum to help open up a more informed, empathetic, and even-tempered conversation around heated and charged topics of discussion around the Jewish American life. She is currently the head of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs civility campaign and co-founder of the program's Resetting the Table campaign. Resetting the Table builds constructive dialogue and deliberation on the often divisive topic of Israel. They do this across differences in backgrounds and views. Their unique methodology supports participants to move through challenging conversations with trained facilitators, process design, and other methods that draw from conflict resolution and dialogue fields. Their programs have opened up Israel conversation and study across disagreement in hundreds of organizations across the country, including dozens of college campuses. Storytelling is often an important foundation for their work, engaging communities in substantive dialogue across political differences and divides. Now first, I want to play for you a short story of hers. I asked her to tell me an experience of her own, which, in her opinion, came to help shape her beliefs. She went on to provide an insightful, impacting vignette that I think really provides context to the stories you'll hear this hour. Now I apologize for any fuzz in the audio, as we could only do this interview over the phone. This is Melissa.
2: Showed up at Harvard Hillel toward the beginning of the year and heard Alan Dershowitz speaking. Um, and uh, at that point in my life, I identified fully with with uh, the viewpoint that he was presenting, um, and uh, had no issues with uh, with what what he was advocating. Um, but a, a young man raised his hand in the audience and introduced himself as Rami from Ramallah and he asked a question about collective punishment. And I'd never heard the phrase collective punishment. I didn't know what it meant. But he asked the question so respectfully and diplomatically as if he really wanted to inspire a conversation about something important, but he wasn't trying to provoke. And the room kind of erupted in tension um, between those who I think wanted to sh- shut him down or were just uncomfortable um, and those who... Wanted to hear what he had to say, who were fewer at that time, and Dershowitz verbally boxed him in response um, and didn't really engage his question at all. And um, it awakened a curiosity in me, first of all, for what his question meant. Um, That inspired uh, years of um, looking at this conflict from all different perspectives, including Palestinian ones. Um, But also it turned me off to the Jewish community Um, not just the Jewish communal conversation on on Israel, but the Jewish community altogether. It was the last time that I showed up at Hillel for four years. I really had a sense that the critical inquiry and way of looking at issues that I brought to every other um, issue in my life was not um, taken for granted in the Jewish communal conversation on Israel. Like something was wrong here.
1: Now, years later, Melissa's work with Resetting the Table is providing a groundwork for dialogue that in part is premised on giving everyone the freedom to participate in discussions as unique individuals, each with their own background and life experience that impacted the beliefs they carry now. The organization works with national and local Jewish organizations, ranging from federations to Hillels, assisting in facilitated programs and dialogues focused on the Israel-Palestine conflict. At the forefront of Resetting the Table's work has been, in part, a focus on storytelling, on narrative, as an example of personal expression, a way of teasing out differences between people on opposing sides of a charged political issue. They do this by disarming people through the universal fact that people shape their beliefs in the same way, through
2: life experiences. We find that... um on political issues, especially those that inspire sharp differences of opinion. We tend to encounter people's positions and analysis without knowing much about the real integrity and genuine concerns that lie behind their views. And, um, when we share our stories, we come to be known in a way that we simply otherwise couldn't be known. We come to know other people in a way we couldn't have otherwise known them without being let into their stories. Um, we, we, uh, it's often the, the powerful and funny and strange moments in our lives that crack open what Israel um or any political position or life itself really means to us in what our lens is. And uh, I'll actually, I'll quote Ira Glass here. talks about how narrative is a backdoor to a very deep place inside of us. Um, and we want people to be led into that deeper place of heart and gut as the foundation for communication and relationship as they're investigating issues.
1: When we spoke, Melissa summed this idea up best through a metaphor taken from the work of moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt at NYU, of a person's beliefs becoming akin to that of a person trying to ride and steer an elephant.
2: The elephant is a deep layer of instincts and commitments and intuitions, life experiences that drive our analytical reasoning. And the rider uh, is our lawyer, in a sense. Um, uh, It thinks it's in charge. It's sitting, um, it's fashioning post-hoc, you know, rationalization for what the elephant already thinks, and it's hard and gut, Um, but it it, it thinks it's in control, Um, but truthfully, um, it's completely overmatched, and any time the six-ton elephant and the rider disagree about which direction to go, the the rider's going to lose. So um, our work really focuses on engaging and accessing the elephant, that deeper layer of intuition, instinct, heart, and gut, Um, not because the analytical level isn't important, but because we want people's exchanges to be um, on a foundation of seeing what really motivates each other because that's where the possibility for actually impacting each other's thinking occurs. As my
1: conversation with Melissa continued, she touched on how we, people in general, can learn many things in their lifetime, and yet know absolutely nothing about what they're talking about. We'll come back to my conversation with Melissa later in the program, but as we move to our next story, I ask if you could ponder that metaphor. If your experiences really shape your views, like that of the primal unknown elephant, where does that leave your viewpoints in general? Do you really know why you believe what you do? Or is your life outlook maybe just a rationale after the fact? As you'll hear in our next story, something as simple as a brick wall, based on the experiences of many, most of which out of one's control, can lead to a multitude of outcomes. Now I'd like to introduce you to Oriya Zinder. Oriya is a sophomore at UVM studying molecular genetics. She's incredibly active with Hillel at UVM and, as you're going to hear, incredibly fond of staring at the stars. Her story takes us to the Kotel once again, the Western Wall, as she visits the site with a group of fellow birthright students. I'll let her take it from here.
3: Recently, I went to Israel on a birthright trip. Other people who had been there told me that I was going to connect in a way that I never had before. To a country that the most likely place for this to happen was at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. I had been to Israel once before, that I can remember, but it was with my family, so this seemed different. When we arrived at the wall, it was raining. Cold, icy rain and hail. There was a ramp above us that seemed to have been acting as a shelter for us at the time. One of my friends and I were standing together, looking at the wall from under this ramp. She turned to me and said, So what now? I shrugged and answered with, I guess we go up? So we walked up to the wall, getting uncomfortably soaked by the cold rain, and she placed her note into the wall. I looked up at it, put my hand on one of the cold, wet bricks. I turned to her, and because there was almost no one there, we weren't sure if we could talk. So I nodded my head back towards where we might be able to find shelter. And we started to walk backwards, away from the wall. We stopped in a little prayer room, the walls lined with plastic, not really walls, but it was protecting us from the rain. There was a woman in there praying, so we had to be quiet. So we sat, and we waited for the rest of our group. When the group seemed to have been walking back, past us, towards the spot where we said, would meet, everyone started talking to each other about how they got so emotional. Some had cried, some were still crying, and someone said she had been uncontrollably laughing. But I hadn't connected, not mentally and not emotionally. How do you connect to a bunch of old bricks stacked on top of each other? All I was thinking was, What's wrong with me? Why didn't I connect like they did? At this point in the trip, we had been with our eight Israeli soldiers for a couple of days. I had started to connect really well with a few of them, and we talked about why they liked being in Israel. The big answer I kept getting was that it was because their families were there and their friends were there. I could understand that, I have family in Israel, but that still didn't explain why I couldn't connect the way all my American friends had, and I felt left out. A few nights later, we arrived at the Bedouin tents, and as we walked in, there were people everywhere. A whole bunch of large black tents, too. As I was looking around, I noticed that there were floodlights. Even in the middle of the desert, there was light pollution. I looked at the sky to see the stars, and there were a few here and there, but it was like trying to see the stars from the middle of a construction site. I love looking at the stars. So when our tour guide said, in 20 minutes, we are going to look at the stars, dress warm, I got giddy and excited. We walked out of the gates, all talking about how excited to see the stars we were, and got to the spot that our guide decided on and grouped together, trying not to be too loud because there were a few other groups nearby. Our guide then took out his fancy flashlight and pointed it up towards the sky and said, here's this constellation, there's that one, and there's the North Star. Okay, let's go. That's it, I thought. I turned to my neighbors and lingered in that spot, talking to them about how we wanted to stay out longer. After a little nagging, our guide agreed to let us stay out of the gates for a little bit longer, as long as we were with a staff member. We walked out further and decided on a spot a little further away from the lights, with only a few bushes lining the sandy ground, and laid down. We talked for a minute about what we should do, and concluded on reading the poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee, and Nigoon. A melody that we had learned earlier that week. Then we decided on five minutes of silence. In that moment, everything felt right. The stars had aligned. I finally had connected to Israel.
1: When she finished her story, I asked Araya if she felt like that experience and her trip to Israel helped solidify her Jewish American identity, and she stopped me at the question.
3: I don't think so. I think my Jewish identity um, is very, like has always been very solidified, Um, at least since I came to college, but going on birthright changed it, I guess, a little bit, because it seemed more like I had friends in Israel now I could relate a little bit more to other people when they talked about Israel. So it definitely changed my Jewish identity, but it didn't solidify my Jewish identity.
1: Important to emphasize what Oriah said at the end there, it changed her identity, but it didn't solidify it. When I spoke with Melissa Weintraub, I asked her how she saw people's identities and how she saw the stories behind them come into play in the dialogues she helps facilitate between various leadership groups in talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict. What she said was powerful, especially when I asked her for an example of a time when she saw firsthand the impact of simply telling one side of the story from a personal lens. This is Melissa.
2: So the first example that that came to mind was actually from a Jewish-Christian dialogue um, of uh, leadership who were sharing formative life experiences that have shaped their lens on Israel and on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And for the Christian leaders, many of them had entered... Israel through Syria, where they'd enter Israel, first having been in the West Bank, with so Palestinians. The Jewish leaders were opening up the moment of standing before the Kotel in 1967, feeling it had been liberated before their eyes, and that, that sense of triumph and ecstasy. And um, this was a very serious gathering, talk about rules of engagement and norms um, on, a, on a major level of Jewish-Christian relationship, and yet if we had gone straight to the point of talking about uh, that level of decision-making without them seeing Israel through each other's eyes and how dramatically different Israel is if you enter Israel through Syria versus if you stood before the Kotel in 1967 crying, um, they couldn't have made any decisions together. It was a it was a it was a that cracking open moment of them not just knowing each other but know but but gaining empathy for positions that they find found objectionable in each other and being able to hear those positions with a lot more room because of it. But we see this um we see this across generations and across silos on a regular basis in the rooms that we convene. Um, in, in very subtle ways even. When I mean, we're sitting with a room of people and they see, oh, like what's really, you know, one of the things that's really shaping your view on settlements um, is the relationship you had with your grandfather who served in the Kaganah, and the, um, the founding Israeli army and the things that he taught you. Or, or um, what's shaping your view are the things that you... See you didn't get to pass on to your children and um, and what that uh, how that's translated into um, the activism that they take um, if, even in those very subtle ways if if we haven't seen that in each other when we start talking about what roles we should or shouldn't be playing or when we should or shouldn't be critical publicly or um what should or shouldn't have happened with the Iran deal within Jewish institutions, then um, we can't begin to understand each other's positions.
1: There's one thing we noticed when we were crafting this program, it was a resounding desire from all for empathy, to understand where people are coming from in their various differing relationships to Israel. We conclude today's program with one more story, one more trip to the Holy Land and back, coming this time from Michael Swain. Michael is a senior at UVM, a double major in English and economics. He's former president of Hillel, occasional columnist in the student newspaper, I could go on. He's the kind of student who does a lot, but will be humble about it to the end. However, a defining characteristic of his as well is cynicism, a skepticism of sorts. And this story is about his struggles with this skepticism during a trip to Israel. I'll let Michael take it from there.
4: Almost two years ago now, I was riding the Seattle city bus from the bottom of my my uncle's street uh, all the way to the Ballard Locks, and then I'd cross the locks every day to get to his architecture office where I was working a summer intern. And while I was on the bus, I wasn't paying attention to the beautiful summers in Seattle. I wasn't paying attention to the people on the bus. I was just kind of glued to my phone like everyone else was. Um, war had broken out in the Middle East uh, between Israel and Palestine. And this time, however, when I was reading the news, I felt that I was a little bit closer to the action in ways that I hadn't been in the past. The blast of rockets arcing across the skies the bleak walls of concrete safety tunnels in tel aviv barbed wire fences and iron dome anti-rockets all of this from the safety of a city bus so to explain the way i was feeling i have to go back to my first year in college as an undergrad i was a liberal arts student uh, who i thought was a little bit naive my opinions kind of assumed this default position of extraordinarily, extraordinarily unhealthy skepticism. Um, and in the spring, around the same while I was an undergrad, I was accepted as uh, to go on the UVM Hillel birthright trip to Israel. And we had this orientation session, you know, going over things like how much money you should bring, what kind of clothes you should pack, how, when and how to get to New York to take the the free airplane all the way to Belgium and then Israel, and then at the end they they told us that when we were on this trip we would get to see the quote unquote real Israel. And I, I laughed out loud when I heard this proposition. I just thought it was absurd that a trip that was funded by conservative Sheldon Adelson and the the Israeli government uh, could really show me the real Israel. You know, based on the things that I'd read in the news or heard from other students at my university. So I was determined from the very beginning to try and subvert the indoctrination that I thought they were going to throw at me as soon as I got on this trip. A couple weeks after this orientation session, my professor Isaac Cates, he overheard the fact that I was going on this trip. At the time I was taking Cates's creative writing course, but he also teaches graphic novel, and he recommended this novel by Sarah Glidden called How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Uh, And I wasn't a big reader of graphic novels, but I figured why not, so I bought the book. A couple weeks later, I was getting ready to leave for the trip, and I started reading the novel on my way to New York, and what I quickly found is that Sarah Glidden is a lot like I am. The graphic novel is about several years before she wrote the book. Sarah went on the same birthright trip. And she's kind of recalling her experience there um, as she goes through the trip. And I found myself relating to her very strongly. She was a college student. She kind of had this same naive, extraordinary skepticism about politics that I did. And so I really enjoyed as I started going through the novel. Shortly after that, I found myself in the middle of the Middle East. And one of the first places that we went was this high elevated place that kind of overlooked a valley with a bunch of barbed wire fence. And when we got there, they allowed us to kind of walk around for a bit and then we all settled on this perch that overlooked the valley. Uh, and there were there were what we, th- we heard what we thought was an explosion in the distance like gunshots or rockets or something like that. When we all got together in a group, our tour guide asked us if anyone knew where we were. And I realized I knew precisely where we were. And I knew where we were because I read it in Sarah Glidden's novel. We were in the Golan Heights. And this absolutely fascinated me that we were in the Golan Heights because it's a piece of territory that technically doesn't really belong to anyone. And here we were, 40 college students, sitting down eating hot dogs and sipping coffees in somewhere that was not really belonging to any government whatsoever, an experience that I'd never had before. And for those of you who don't know, the Golan Heights is this territory that Israel took during the Six-Day War and then defended again from Syria in the Yom Kippur War several years later. But the UN doesn't recognize that that land belongs to Israel because it wasn't partitioned to them. So really, right now, it just belongs to nobody whatsoever. I just reveled in the fact that we were in this place. It just seems so impossible. As we went from place to place in Israel, I continued reading on the bus Sarah Glennon's novel. And what I realized is not only that I really empathize with uh, Sarah Glidden's characterization of herself, but I also noticed quite eerily that every place that she went, I went. And even though not every trip goes in the exact same order, it was uncanny how it was the exact same logical order of the places that happened in the novel. If Sarah Glidden went to the Dead Sea, I went to the Dead Sea. If she went to Mount Masada, I went to Masada or Tel Aviv. The largest moment where I started feeling like Sarah, uh, the character from the novel, is when we met the Israeli soldiers. Now about halfway through the trip, There were six or seven Israeli soldiers who took a little bit of time off to join us on our trip. And we were going to meet them in this hotel in Tel Aviv. And we had to do this activity right before they arrived. And the idea was that we split up into six groups, one group for each soldier that we had. And that each group would get the name of their soldier but no other details about their identity. And we would have to draw a picture of them and then write what they're like using only their name. And so basically what they asked us to do was just judge what we thought an Israeli soldier was like. There was this one guy who was quite a character in our group, a kid from UVM, his name's Dan Feldman. Now, Dan Feldman was this kind of loud, obnoxious, really funny hockey player who was just this really big guy that everyone loved because he was always having so much fun. And Dan Feldman got his group to make a person who is exactly like himself, although more like an Israeli soldier. And so this character they wrote down, his name was Moshiko. Moshiko was this tall, handsome, olive skinned soldier with like bullets strapped across his chest and like a knife and a holster and like all this ridiculous stuff. And so when we all finished this project, we would share the project with someone and then that soldier would enter the room so that we could see what they're actually like. So Dan presented this guy um, what they had on the paper and then Moshiko walks in and he's exactly like Dan describes, unlike any other soldier. And the whole room just erupts in laughter. Everyone's cracking up because none of the soldiers so far were anything like the drawings that we made. But Moshiko was almost precisely what Dan had dreamt up. it was at this time when everyone started laughing that I actually kind of felt like crying. It was that it was this moment that I realized what had been happening the entire time on the trip. I was being spun by my own conceptions of what I thought Israel was. My problem was that I was attempting to live a construction of Israel, to live one of two narratives an American could invest in depending on their ideology neither of which adequately described the place or the people that I was meeting there. Ironically, though there were some objectionable parts of the trip, I was indeed experiencing something real about Israel at this moment, and for the entire trip for that matter. The reality was that no matter where you go, no matter who you meet, there are people with undeniable humanity. Something about the way that this soldier related to Dan Feldman broke down my walls. The fallacy of the narrative I was buying into was that it failed to account for the fact that there were real people like me behind the numbers in the news and behind the stories that they told.
1: After Michael finished his story, I wanted to ask him to expand on what he said in the closing, that his experience brought a new humanity to the stories he read in the news. How did this experience impact his identity as a Jewish American? This is Mike
4: as it changed the way that I had to think about the place. Um, I mean, like I said in the story, I I could no longer think about it and kind of reduce Israel to just a series of like political concepts. I had to really think about like what are the ramifications for people who live in Israel and in Palestine and for the rest of the Middle East. And so it just made me a lot more empathetic with the, the people who live there.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Story Table. I would like to thank Sophie Leff, Oriya Zinder, and Michael Swain for sharing their stories with us. I would also like to thank Rabbi Melissa Weintraub for taking the time to speak with us. This episode of Story Table was brought to you in part by Resetting the Table, as well as UVM Hillel. Production on this episode, as well as all music, was done by the one and only Liam Hughes from the band Silent Tides. Reporting and narration was done by me, Jacob Holzman. If you have a story about anything at all, email us at storytablepodcast at gmail.com. And whether it's sunrise, sunset, before or after, we hope you enjoyed joining us at the Story Table.